ahead, open your Bibles to Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27 as we continue through our study of Romans. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair near you. Uh, You can use that. And if you don't have a Bible at all, please take that with you. That's our gift to you. It'll also be on the screens. And we also use the YouVersion Bible app. If you go to the events tab under more, we'll pop up and you can follow along there as well. So we're going to be looking, continuing in Romans 8 today as we continue to study through Romans. But uh, Paul's closing statement last week, as, as Lachansky was teaching us, it was telling us that, that part of God's glorious promise of, of partaking in the riches of being co-heirs with Christ, and this is all language from, from last week's text, you know, co-heirs with Christ as sons and daughters of God is also partaking in his suffering. You're like, what kind of promise is that? But that's kind of where we were left off with last week. It's like, hey, glorious truth. You are co-heirs with Christ. You are adopted as sons and daughters. You are kept. You are in. Nothing can change that. And oh, yeah, you got to suffer. Suffering comes with it. And so then, as Paul has been doing all throughout Romans, it comes to this question. And Paul, see, he knows what's going to come. And, maybe, and probably because he has thought it himself, it's the question of, well, is it worth it? That's the question. Like, is, is the suffering worth it? Is this Christian, this inheritance that comes with being in Christ, worth all the hardship and heartache that comes with living as a child of God? Sorry, I'm going to start my timer and dock myself a few minutes. Um, sorry, thanks. Is it worth it? Is, it? is all the heartache and hardship that comes with, with living as a child of God worth it? And unfortunately, we know we've all wrestled with this ourselves, and and we've seen some say, you know, no, it's not worth it. It's that that life, that person that you've seen, and maybe you've gone through this, maybe you're in this, it's the fizzle out. It's the drift away. It's the fade away J, right? It's It's when the rewards that we get here and now just aren't enough. And we say, you know what? It's just a little bit simpler if I, if I make it compartmentalized, if I make it maintainable, or if I just say, you know what, forget it. We've, we have felt that tension, and I say I, and I'm saying we just to make myself feel better, but I assume it's true of most of us, and we've seen that. And so this is, what, this is, this is why this question matters. So as we come to our text today, Paul answers this question for us of, is it worth it, with an emphatic and resounding yes. Let's look at that, Romans 8, 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Some translations say in us. It's the same word. It's a directional statement of either to or in. For I consider that the sufferings of of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me pray. God, that, that verse is a verse that I have clung to for so long. I know for at least 20 years. It's one that I've pointed to as a source of hope. But I also know for the, most of those 20 years, it's been more like a rabbit's foot than a real truth. Something that I pull out when I'm discouraged and just need a shot of adrenaline. I pray today as we unpack this this statement that is almost too great to grasp, 
that whatever comes, whatever sufferings come now, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Lord, it's so far beyond our capacity to understand. I know because our, our, we are limited, we're finite, and yet we're talking about infinite glory. And so, God, we just we can't get there. And I'm grateful for that, but I also know that it tends towards a lesser a lesser experience and, and hunger for this truth. And so I pray now as we unpack this today that we would end the day saying, yes, indeed, it is worth it, and that we would end the day with our confidence being in you, not us, and our desire being for your greatness and your renown and your glory, made known now and forevermore, and getting to abide in that forever. So we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. So there it is. Paul says, come what may, whatever this life brings, Whatever your obedience takes you into, whatever tension you face in your imperfection, whatever, whatever conviction you experience over your own sin, it's worth it. He says, I consider this, for I consider, and that word consider, I don't often like, like try to, I don't often bring the Greek out here, it informs a lot of what we teach, but it's this word logizomai, and it's this, and what it means is like to reckon after much consideration. It is to decide it is so after calculating much info, after calculating, taking into full account all that there is. And so it's not some like just thing that Paul said. He's been through it. He's considered it. He's experienced it. And he's gotten a glimpse. If you think about the day that he came to know Jesus, he got a glimpse of glory. He got a glimpse of something greater than most of us ever get to. And so he's like tasted, he's gotten the appetizer, he's gotten the sample, and he's like, so I'll tell you what, I just got a taste, and I've been through some pretty rough stuff, and I say whatever else, whatever I've gone through, and whatever is to come is worth it. He's considered it, he knows, and he says it's worth it. The promise of what is to come is worth whatever trials occur here. So how do we live with such a perspective? We didn't have a moment on a road where all of a sudden we were caught up in the presence of a blinding light and heard the voice of Jesus. So how do we get to live with such a perspective, with such confidence? How do we live with this kind of confidence in what is to come? What was it that Paul calculated and considered that brought him to this place? So this is what we get to unpack in verses 19 through 27 today. In short, the answer is this. The answer is hope. Hope is what sustains, is what gives us confidence. But what is that hope, and how, and how do we get it? And the language that Paul uses is really interesting as we work through this. He teaches us about hope using the term groaning, like and so we look at this, and we see as he's teaching us about hope, he talks about creation groaning, he talks about those who are in Christ groaning, and he talks about the Holy Spirit groaning. And I don't know about you, but I don't typically think of positive things when I think of groaning. I think about getting out of bed early. I think about doing squats. I think about, you know, eating uh, cooked leafy vegetables. Like, I just, I don't, I just, that's what I think of when I think of groaning. But yet we see here like, hey, you want to know hope? You want confidence and assurance? You want to be able to say, yes, indeed, it is worth it? Let's talk about groaning. So 
Maybe that whets your appetite a little bit. So let's start with creation groaning. Let's look at verses 19 through 22. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, that's by the way, that goes together, because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So we have to remember, first off, this about creation. All that was created, which God created all, by the way, all that was created was created good and was created for God's holy purpose. It was created whole. It was created, it was created in the absolute way that it should be. And when we think, when we read this, we need to understand what we're talking about when we say creation. This is important. So just real quickly, when we say creation here, it is not just a sweeping statement of all creation because it's in all things we think of. So just to be really clear, it's not speaking of angels here. They, they are not subject to vanity or corruption. It's not speaking of Satan, for he does not long for the day of redemption, Right? It's not speaking of Christ's followers because Christ's followers are distinguished within this talk of creation in verses 19, 21, and 23 right there, the sons of God, the glory of creation, uh, those things. It's not speaking of mankind in general because it cannot be said that, that they were subjected to futility by a will other than their own. It was their will. We also can't say this of just unbelieving mankind in particular. Because like Satan, they do not long for redemption. We are dead in our sin, longing for no goodness until the Holy Spirit peeks in and calls us. So it can't be said of that. Thus, all rational creation is ruled out. So by creation, what Paul means here is earth, nature, non-rational creation, both animate and inanimate. Okay, so why does it matter? Why does Paul start with general creation and addressing our hope. So let's follow his train of thought. This is important because it was important enough that he took the time to go through this. Paul wants us to identify with creation as he sets it out. That's why he personifies creation. That's why he gives it per person-like, human-like characteristics of speaking of its longing, its desire. He says, he says creation waits with eager longing. So he wants us to identify with creation, and that's why he personifies it, and it's also true. So we look at verse 20 and 21 when we want to answer why does creation wait with eager longing. So when we think about Romans 5, when the first Adam, when Adam sinned and fell, all of mankind fell. We were all, we were all made guilty. We were all sinners. So this also includes, it wasn't just us that fell, but all of creation fell. There's unity in this. All of creation fell at that time. So just it wasn't just us to experience the judgment of God and the recompense for disobedience and self-sovereignty. All of creation was enveloped in that judgment. So creation experienced the same thing that we did. There was a corruption. There was a falling. There was a deadness. It says the creation was subjected 
to futility here. And this word futility is the same Greek word that in the Septuagint, have you ever heard that word before? It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you don't know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was mostly written in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, but mostly Greek. And along the way, later on, a group of really smart people came and translated the Old Testament into Greek. And so as we look at in Ecclesiastes, there's this statement of, of vanity. It's the same Greek word for futility here. It's this word, matiotes. It's the second Greek word today. I think that's the most we've ever done. And what it means here is vanity, futility, and worthlessness. It's the same idea. It's to show the emptiness of the present in contrast with the living fullness of the future. And so it was subjected to this to this futility, to this worthlessness, to this emptiness. So in the fall, in God's justice, there was consequence. There was consequence in judgment, but at the same time, there's a proclamation of hope when all will be restored. We, we often look at Genesis, well, we, not so we often, it is the first picture of this in Genesis 3.15 when God is speaking judgment to Adam and Eve and then he turns to the serpent and he says, and hey, in her offspring, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. You will bruise him, but he will kill you. And that's, a, that's the first proclamation of the deliverance to come through Jesus. And so we see that in this judgment at the same time, there is hope. And so we see that creation came under this same this same fall, this same, this same great need, but yet there is hope. Verse 21 tells us creation will be free from its bondage of corruption and obtain the same freedom of the children of God. Verse 22 says, and this is where we come to our first groan. It says, creation groans with the pain of childbirth until now. Have you ever thought about that? Like, maybe you've read this verse before. Maybe it's caught your attention. Maybe it hasn't. But groaning with the pain of childbirth, what tone? Like, what is that? What do you think about? What tone is this? It's, it's lifted and exalted and hopeful. There's elation in the pain. Because what is to come? This groaning is not a groaning at the very last breath before death. It is the groaning of great anticipation just before new life. Do you hear that? Let me say it again in case you didn't. This groaning is not the groaning at the very last breath just before death. It is the groaning of longing and great anticipation right before new life. That's childbirth. That's the promise in verse 20. There will be pain and anguish for a bit in this life but it only proceeds the most glorious and precious new life. Look at this picture. That's Amber. That, oh my gosh. That face is right after she had Gavin. Amber had a rough pregnancy. You know, we were just talking about it with some friends this week. Like, typically first trimester is pretty bad. Maybe if you have a bad one, then it kind of eases off. And then, and then kind of at the end, you kind of just get uncomfortable. I was just talking to, to Libby this morning. And, you know, and their June 20th is their, their date. And she's like, I'm, because I, I was talking about how she has the glow. And she's like, I feel like I've got, I don't know what words you use, but it wasn't pleasant. And um, <laughs> she said the bloat. She's like, I just feel, oh, so uncomfortable. So that's kind of the typical thing. And then you actually go through this dramatic thing of childbirth. I mean, Amber, so Amber just had 
Like, the whole thing was bad. The whole thing was just uncomfortable, and then it just got to that point where, actually, she enjoyed the last two weeks, I think, right? Anyway, just to be fully honest, she's like, I love this. Uh, so it was weird, but, but typically, <laughs> I mean, look at her. We have so many pregnant ladies in our church right now, and they're all just, like, popping out, and it's awesome. And they're all kind of getting to that point where they're later on, and they're, like, and they're going from, like, smiling all the time to, like, you know, just, like, ready to, like, get this thing out and have fun with this beautiful baby. And, and, but that's this picture here. I mean, like, Amber had just had Gavin. This is the first moment she saw Gavin. Hear that, buddy? That's the first time Mommy saw you right there. Look at those eyes. All that preceded is wiped away. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't pale in comparison to the beauty of the new life that was before her. That's this picture here. You can take that away or else no one else is going to hear anything else I say. It's just too wonderful. But that's the picture here. Let's go back to verse 19 for a second. It says that creation waits for eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing here. There's a word picture here. There's a word picture. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you another, this is like love on Amber Day. Um, another story is our wedding day. And, I, I, and we did the thing where you don't see each other the day of. And I'm standing in front of all the people with my, myself, my best man, and the guy who was marrying us, waiting for the doors to open. Everyone's come in, and everything is stopped, and it's still. And then everyone stands up. And all of a sudden, my view's blocked, and everyone leans in, and I can't see anything. And I, and I hear the doors open, and I hear the gasp, because Amber is Amber, and she's beautiful. And I can't see anything. And I'm, like, doing this right here, and, I can't, and I'm, like, jumping, and I can't see. And then I literally jump up on the stage, and I'm just standing up there, and then I turn into a blubbering, ugly, crying mess, because I beheld the beauty of my bride. But that picture of me craning and straining my neck so that I could get the soonest possible glimpse of the beauty of what was before me is the picture here of this word eagerly awaiting. It is that sense of, of crea- saying creation is straining its neck. It is, it is doing all that it can to be able to, at the first possible moment, see the beauty of God's fulfilled promise in the sons of God. What does that mean? We get, the, we get the word picture. What about when we see the promise fulfilled in the sons of God? It is speaking of the body of Christ. It's the same sense we saw in verse 15 from last week where we're promised the spirit of those adopted as sons and daughters. This day of the revealing of the sons of God is the day when God's promise is completely fulfilled and we see that most gloriously presented through the church. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom, that's the complete picture of truth of God again. Because remember what wisdom is. Because you can know a lot of stuff and not be wise. Wisdom is knowing a lot of stuff and knowing how to, how to apply it rightly. That's wisdom. So the manifold wisdom of God is the complete, understood, expressed truth of God. And so he's saying that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that's speaking of this restoration of the glorious last day. Right? Because we live, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? So we're going to let Paul get us there. I'm excited. So this is why Paul starts with creation as he works to bring us 
the assurance of our future hope. He personifies creation so that it can say, so that creation can say that its confidence is that it knows that as it goes well with those who are in Christ, it goes well for creation. When it sees the glorious promise fulfilled through the people of God, all of its burden, its futility that it was subjected to, not by its own will, but by the will of God for the sake of redeeming and there being a work of beauty restored, it's waiting. Do you believe this? Do you look for hope like that? Do you have that sense of expectancy and eagerness? But this is not just a future hope. Paul shows us that our hope is present as he comes to our groaning, the second groaning. First, the groaning of creation. Second, the groaning of those who have called on Christ. We groan too. And let me say, if you're sitting here today, and that doesn't describe you, if you're not, if you're not one who was called on Christ, hey, hear this as an invitation, hear it as a promise, hear it as as comfort, a comforting invitation. You can know this freedom, this restoration, this peace, this confidence as well. So when I say we, I'm not saying it to be exclusive. I'm saying it because this is what we are shown where our hope is. There is no other hope besides being in this we of those who are in Christ. So we come to those who are in Christ. We come to their groaning. Romans 8, 23 through 25, it says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, same thing, for the adoption as sons. The redemption, and by the way, just know that's inclusive. It's all those who are in Christ, sons and daughters. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul brings those who are in Christ into this same sense of assured anticipation as we just talked about with creation. But Paul, but here, Paul makes it really clear that our hope is not just in the future. It's not just a far-off hope. This hope is also for the here and now. We see that in this word, first fruits. And when we see that word, it's, it's, a, it's an agricultural word. It's the first fruits of the crop. It's what you go and you grab, and it gives you a taste of what the yield is going to be. It lets you know what's coming, what the yield is going to be. So first fruits of the Spirit, as again what we talked about these last couple of weeks, the Holy Spirit has guaranteed a work in us. It has done a work in us. It has given us a taste of the fulfillment of God's promise. It has given us a taste of being a part of His, of his family. It has given us a taste of being, of being free of sin, both the, both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And there is a day coming when we will be free of the presence of sin. And so we see this first fruit is this taste. Because God has given us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit acts as a guarantee and seal of those claimed by God, we have experienced a taste of what is to come. 
And it's not just, again, this is not just a sample. This is the full blessing of God in the sense that we are fully delivered. We are fully in Christ. We are fully adopted as sons. I love, I think I'm ahead of myself right now, but I love what Luchansky pointed out last week was, was how there was a greater bond to adoption in the time of this writing than there was to natural childbirth. You could cast off your own child really easily, but when you adopted a child, you, it was permanent. By the way, congrats to the Janots. So exciting. Sean is officially adopted. Almost. The day is set. But the first fruits of the Spirit have given us a taste of this completed promise. And yet there's still a greater promise to come. 2 Corinthians 5, 5 says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So while our physical bodies wait for a future hope when all will be restored, including our bodies, as we just read, we must remember that the most important work God does is our spiritual renewal. It's the inward work. And I say it's the most important because if that's not done, it doesn't matter your bodies. There's no thing, like... Matthew says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Well, Jesus said this, but it's in Matthew. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Your bodies can experience all the goodness this world has to offer, but if your soul is not taken care of, if the inward is not taken care of, your bodies will perish. So the soul, the inward is the most important, and that's what we're being called to here, and that's why our future hope is a very real experience now. We groan inwardly because the spiritual work in this promise is complete in us. It's gotten a taste of the glory and it's longing for the complete experience. Do you see how we're getting there? How it's personal, more and more personal. Although there's a coming day of full deliverance in the future, we live with this confidence and assurance that it is already complete. The groaning is the same. Um, the groaning is the same as the groaning of the Holy Spirit, which we're coming to in a minute. But as we groan, we groan because again, the Holy Spirit, well, okay, let's just wait. It is groaning of great longing and anticipation, and it leads to a, a greatness, a great experience of new life. Again, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, make sure to go back and listen to it on our website or the app or the podcast. It's available in all those places. And I'm just really thankful for how, with great clarity, uh, Lachansky walked us through these, these concepts of adoption and, and the keeping of the Holy Spirit, uh, how he keeps us and who the Holy Spirit is. Really, such a great job last week. Um, this, this reality is our hope and assurance. Verse 24 and 25 are not some enigmatic statement. We're talking about this hope thing. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if hope for what, he, what we do not, if, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is not just some kind of proverbial Yoda-ish kind of enigmatic thing. This is a promise. To hope in what we do not see is to hope in God and all that he promised. 
This includes all he has done, all he is doing, and all he will do. We all tend to hope in what we can see. We all tend to hope in what we can touch, which is ourselves and the things of this world. And by the way, this goes all the way back to the first sin, to say that I trust myself more than I trust God. I trust me to be my sovereign than for him to be my sovereign. It all comes back to that. And this is the same thing. And so when we, Paul is calling us away from, it's not just some, some cool statement. He's like, hey, the things of this world, they don't deliver. They don't satisfy. They don't provide you peace. They're good. God created all things good. We're meant to enjoy them with gratefulness as an offering and, an, and, and, a, and with great joy. And to return them unto him. But yet they are never the thing that satisfies. They're never the thing that delivers. They're never the thing that brings us hope. They will always only satisfy. They're the opposite. They satisfy for a short time and end with great suffering. As opposed to the promise we see here. There is short-term suffering with eternal glory. We, We too often choose the created over the creator. And this is what Paul is trying to wake us up from and saying, you want, I mean, how often do we talk about like, ah, oh, I just, uh, I don't feel it. I, I, I'm struggling spiritually because I just don't feel God. I don't, and it's because we're, lo- um, we're looking at our circumstances. Let's keep moving and we'll come back to that in a second. Because he calls us to wait in patience to wait with patience. When we hope in God, we're given the ability to wait with patience. Because hear, hear this, and think about what it is to wait with patience. To wait with patience is to live with confidence, contentment, and peace. It's, it's not like, just because you're waiting doesn't mean you're patient. Like, it's not just having to wait on something that makes you patient. You can, be, you can wait on everything all the time and be the most impatient person. To wait with patience speaks to the way in which we wait. Many wait, but most and many are not patient. It's how we wait that shows our patience, and that is an evidence of who God is and with the work he has done, and, and it's us clinging to that. Let's, let's move quickly. Charles Hodge, I love how he summarized this whole section. He says, salvation in its fullness is not a present reality, but a matter of hope. And of course, is in the future. Since it is in the future, it follows that we must wait for it with patient and joyful expectation. While therefore waiting for salvation is necessary from the nature of the case, the nature of the blessing Waited for, waited for, transforms expectation into desire and enables us to endure all present evils patiently. So does this describe you? This is the question I had to ask myself. Does this describe me? Do I wait with confident patience? Do I wait with contentment? Do I wait with an understanding of who I am because of who he is, as we sang earlier? Are you blown to and fro by circumstances? Is the goodness of God determined by the goodness and the level of your bank account or the status of your relationship? Are you driven by emotions instead of the steadfastness of God? 
and his promises. What is your response when the going gets rough? Do you come just broken and bare before the eternal sovereign good God and say, I don't get it and I love you and help me? Or is it, man, God can't be good. I don't get it. Like, I don't, is this real? Is anything I feel real? Am I real? Is this, is, is my faith real? Like, I don't feel it. And it's like, I can't, I can't, look, I'm looking around and just there's so much not good. Where, how, how, what is your response when it gets rough? God is saying, you can trust me. Lean into me, he says. Remember who I am so that you can remember who you are. When the storms come, instead of looking at the waves, look to Jesus, who he is and what he has done. It is complete. But this is hard for us, and we're coming to the home stretch here. We are human after all, like we started talking about at the beginning. So let's look at our last few verses to see that we are not alone. We're not left to ourselves to muster the strength to cling to this hope. 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's our last groaning. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I just want us to see something really quick here. One of my greatest comforts came when I came to the understanding of this double advocation that we have. We have two advocates. We have Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit. Jesus advocates our righteousness to a holy God. Jesus has given us his righteousness because of that. We are innocent as we stand before God because of Jesus advocating for us. We are innocent. We are redeemed. And then we have the Holy Spirit advocating the truth and love of God to us speaking God's love. Go back to what we looked at in Romans. He gave us, he poured the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we could remember the love of God. He poured his, poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we could remember his favor on us. The Holy Spirit says, don't forget God loves you. Look at what he did to restore you. Look at the price that he paid. That's your worth. And then he also inclines our motive, our desires, and our lives towards the purpose and glory of God. And that is doing what you're created for is where satisfaction is. That's one of the greatest comforts for me. What a kindness of God. Here we see the work of the Holy Spirit. The helper is another thing we know him as. There are often times that we are at a loss. We're just at a loss. But as, as, as Paul says, I just, I just don't even know what to pray as I ought to in this moment. I just don't know. We're overwhelmed or we can't figure out what the right desire is. We can't figure out what we, what we should even want or if this is a right emotion to feel. Or maybe we're just so stinking angry. Like, it just, it just, I just got nothing. And we end up there. Like, I don't, it's like, I, I, I just don't know. Like, I, I can't even trust myself. We don't know if we're even seeking the right things. So once again, we see this same sense of groaning of the Holy Spirit. We see that the Holy Spirit, God, when he says this, God means it when he invites us to cast all of our cares upon him. He says, hey, as you are, cast them on me. As you are, present your request to me. As you are, state your purpose as best you know. And guess what? You have the Holy Spirit, one, to intercede before you and also to intercede to you. The Holy Spirit comes and he kind of like translates. And he's like, hey, I make sure, not that God needs it right, but this is the way that, again, we have this relationship. Is that It's like when Amber and I are having conflict. We've given each other the, the right to say things imperfectly. Because then if we don't, we end up arguing about the way things are said as opposed to what we need to deal with. 
And so therefore, we get to the heart of the matter. And this is, I think that connects. I think this is a similar thing. So it's a great picture of it, of like, as we come before God as, as limited fallen people who are, are being sanctified, being made more like Christ, but in process, he says the Holy Spirit is there interceding for you. He's going and he's, he is not only inclining your will, but he's also presenting your life to God and, and, and working to bring fruit from you. He knows who and how we are. He knows that we may not do it perfectly. And he's made, it a, he's made a work for us. What we see here is that God has given us the Holy Spirit to shape and lead our desires to the ultimate purpose of God. The Holy Spirit empowers us, motivates us, and inclines our wills to God's. This starts as an underlying work, an underlying work kind of under the surface, but it's cultivating this fruit, this fruit of the Spirit in us that will eventually manifest more and more outwardly. Again, we talked about the word sanctification a few weeks ago. This is the picture. We are set apart and being set apart. We're made new and being made new. We are, we are again, in Christ and being made more like Christ. And that is the beauty of God's work through grace and his truth. So it's a work that's happening kind of in us that then eventually sprouts forward. And if you can look back through your life and see maybe now you're responding with a little bit more patience or maybe now you're enduring trial with a little bit more joy or maybe now you, you, have, a, you, you have an understanding that was beyond your grasp, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You didn't even know what's happening at the time. Maybe you asked for it, but you didn't know it, and now it's got some fruit. So we see this. Because we have the Holy Spirit, our patience from earlier is never passive. But before I say that, before we get to that, I do want to say one more thing. Paul wants us to have this confidence with the Holy Spirit when he, when he calls us to this. We're not alone. We are in process, and the work will be complete. We're not alone. Do not fear. We're in process. Give yourself some grace and continue on the journey. The work will be complete. You can have confidence and assurance. So coming back to what we just said, because we have the Holy Spirit, our patience from earlier that we talked about is never passive. Again, patience is not just waiting. Waiting is passive. Patience is active. To be patient does not mean that you do not have ambition. These verses are full of ambition. The eagerness, waiting, expectation, anticipation, longing, taking a jump up on the step so you can see just a little bit more. There's ambition, but the ambition, the object of ambition matters. Verse 27 tells us the ambition, ambition we seek because of the interceding of the Holy Spirit is for the glory of God. We see the full message coming to fruition, what we've been working through. We talked about having the mind of the Spirit, desiring what the Spirit desires. The Spirit desires the glory of God and the purpose of God. So we see this ambition is a holy ambition, and God gives it to us. He doesn't leave it to ourselves to muster up. He's given us the Holy Spirit. It is for the will and purpose of God being accomplished here in creation. There's an eagerness to partake and participate. You are a part of God's glorious work. You're not just a partaker. You are a, you're not just a purveyor of it. Like I don't know the right word. You don't just observe it. You're a part of it. So to answer the question, is the hardship and heartache that comes with living for Christ worth it? I, I pray that in the midst of what is in front of us and, and, and all of the difficulty, that we see the great hope of what is to come 
and how that it is very a very present reality. If you want to live with hope, peace, and assurance where you are free to live and love as Christ did, to live with hope and assurance and confidence, you have to live for more than today, for more than yourself. If your only concern is that it goes well with you today, you've missed the entire promise of Jesus. If your only concern is that it goes well with you today, you will never be satisfied. You will never be at peace. Because what we are guaranteed in this life is trial. But we're also guaranteed an ever-present hope delivered in grace through faith in Jesus. So if you're only concerned with yourself, you will come to the day when none of this is worth it. So believe the promise that God is real. Believe that he is good. He is working to restore all things. He is doing that in Jesus. And if you have called on him, confessed and believed, you've been given the Holy Spirit to empower you, to intercede for you, to remind you of God's love. When the trial comes, lean in. Be honest. Trust God. You are not alone. You'll never be alone. Live with this groaning, eager anticipation. Strain your neck to see the glory of God. Be active in your patience. Walk in obedience. Love your neighbor. Be the light and hands of Jesus. Call them in to hope. Don't let them flounder. Don't let them be concerned only with their self. Invite them into the greater. Let me pray. So God, we thank you for we thank you for this hope. This hope of eternal promise that is very real now because of the ministry of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So Lord, Work in us, or for those who have called on Christ, let us not slumber. Let us not just look at our navels, but let us look up and look around and see the opportunity of, of, of the ministry of the gospel for your glory. For those in here that don't, have not called on Christ, I pray that this would be something that stirs hearts. I pray that there would be a wooing and a calling in, and a courageous surrender for seeing that you are our good, sovereign God. You made a way for us in Christ, and you promised we will never be alone. So, Lord, let your work be complete in us. Let us continue to worship through communion. In Jesus' name, amen.